This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In Podcast Network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Hello and welcome to the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host, as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is my co-host, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello, everybody. Hello, Elwood. And uh, we have to, of course, welcome you to our yearly tradition that is the Halloween special. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about Tale of Two Sisters, one of the second-tier Asian horror movies of after the likes of The Ring and Audition and Battle Royale of that initial breakthrough and you know revival of interest within within not only Asian horror but Asian cinema as a whole. Uh, this 2003 South Korean psychological horror drama really being a film that many people moved on to after those initial films where they suddenly started taking a whole lot of interest in what South Korea was putting out in terms of its filmography. Um, but before we obviously get into that, we're going to ask, as always, what you've been watching. And, I mean, tonight, Stephen, it's just ourselves. We had originally planned to have a gift. Normally we'd have uh, have Zoe on, but uh, Zoe is off being popular. She's got uh, plans, so she was unable to make it. But uh, you can still obviously check out her shows of Zoe with Shotgun and uh, The Unrated Cut. And, we, you know, we had a couple of other guests, but uh, due to work, uh, Sam... So I had to drop out, and uh, our other guest, we I sent an email to sort of chase up, and they probably deleted the Twitter feed. So I have no idea what happened there, but you know, you can't help but feel a little unwanted by that move. <laughs> I've been ghosted, Elwood. <laughs> I think it's the first time someone's actually deleted the whole Twitter feed to cut off contact with us. So. Oh, fantastic! Well, we're Billy No Mates. Who cares? So yeah, it's just ourselves. Uh, just the two of us, Stephen. It's the main. It's where the money is. The money makers. Don't worry. It's... <laughs> so normally we would obviously, you know, we would have some some sort of uh, chat about you know what Asian horror means to our guests, but obviously I guess we've got to forego that and uh, just you know ask again, really, what you've been watching. And both of us are sort of deep in the midst of the 31 Days of Horror. As of the time of recording, we're on day 25 of 31. So I don't know about yourself, but that, that burn's starting to kick in now. I woke up this morning and was like, I really don't want to watch horror. I just want to watch something quirky and light. I don't want to watch horror films anymore. So um, I, I feel the same. I've, <laughs> I've, I, I, I'm trying to mix it up. Yeah, from all different decades, uh, classics, unknowns, and on the hot, and, and a few rewatches, lots of films that I maybe haven't watched for ten, fifteen years, and then a couple of of, of Asian films in the mix, but but try, trying not to go that way. Um, but I have watched a couple of Asian films, sort of new Asian films uh, with a horror bent. Um, the first one I watched back on day 15, God, that feels a long time ago, but it was only 10 days ago, um, was a Filipino film I found on um, Netflix called Aurora. A very unusual for a Filipino film in that it's set on a on a desolate coastal area. Usually Filipino films are either set in one of the big cities or in the forest or in the jungle. So this is, this is a very uh, cold and windy sort of feel to it the 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 conceit is that in this sort of isolated area a a ferry ship full of thousands of people has gone down and the small community of which appears to be about three people have um taken to both getting stuff from the survivors not the survivors from the victims and sort of selling it on you know like possessions and things like that and also taking on the um uh, taking on the role of maybe getting paid by some of the victims' families to recover bodies, and there's a lot of debate back and forth whether they should do that. Um, that's the first half of the movie. Um, loads of atmosphere, blah blah blah. Um, then it sort of turns into a ghost story, and there's one sort of classic jump scare, 
And then it turns into one of those stories where the ghosts are quite friendly and they just want to tell their story. <laughs> and um, so, so, so it's more of a ghost film than a horror film. Um, it's based on a real, well, it's not based on a real life incident because there's no such thing as ghosts, but it's the, 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 the ferry, the ferry um, uh, tragedy is a, is a real life thing. And basically the ferry was overloaded with people, the kind of thing I've experienced myself in Asia, where it seems that some um, health and safety is not a priority. Lots of people died, unfortunately. Anyway, it's fine. It's, it's looks absolutely beautiful. Tons of atmosphere. If you're going there for a scare, you're probably going to the wrong movie, but very, very atmospheric. And, um, it's always good to see sort of Filipino films on platforms like Netflix. We've spoken before. Um, yeah, very good. And the other one was a rewatch. Um, I'm a huge fan of Joko Anwar, Indonesian director. In fact, uh, I'll do I'll do my annual name drop. He's the only film director I have on WhatsApp. So I've <laughs> I, I've interviewed him in the past. Very nice fella. Um, very interesting because he's a because he's a Muslim and Indonesian. Um, not all his work is in the horror genre, but um, last year he uh, did a remake of a film called Satan's Slaves, which is fantastic, which I'd highly recommend. But I went back to look at a film of his, which um, internationally is known as Modus Anomaly. Um, but in America, it was released, and I think maybe even here, as a film called Ritual. Um uh, the conceit, without spoiling it too much, is guy wakes up in a forest, um, doesn't know where he is, doesn't know his name, um, comes across a cabin in the woods. Um, in the cabin in the woods, there's a video camera set up in front of a TV, and on it it says, "Play this," or "Press play." Presses mm-hmm. play, sees a video of a of a faceless man uh, killing a pregnant woman. Turns around, sees the pregnant woman behind him. Then the first half of the movie. Um, uncovering clues about who he is and what's happened to his family and who's after him and at the same time appears to be being attacked by someone. Um, And then uh, maybe an hour into the film, everything flips and we see we've been watching a completely different story. Um, The twist is, uh, I would say, not controversial, it's a bit silly, but it's only silly if you haven't bought into it. What I found interesting about a rewatch, when I first watched it, I loved it. The first hour is like quite tension and tense and, 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 and it's all about the atmosphere and then the second half turns into a, a more of a bloodbath. Um, watching it the second time around, knowing the twist, which is why I'm kind of avoiding it, the first half is boring as sin and you're just waiting for the twist to happen. <laughs> so it was, um, it's one of those films which is probably best on the first watch doesn't really stand up to repeated viewing once you start thinking about it. It's probably a minor piece in Amwar's um, filmography. So much so, it's one of his films that doesn't even have a um, doesn't even have a Wikipedia entry. But uh, definitely, definitely worth picking up if you can see it on a streaming service, something like that. Cool. Um, yeah, for myself, it's been kind of a mix mixed bag all around. I mean, the just looking obviously at the the Asian cinema stuff that I've been watching because there's been a lot of gap filling with this sort of 31 Days of Horror and we've obviously been running our own 31 Days of Asian Horror over on the Facebook and the Instagram so you can check that out and it's been kind of a fun to see terracotta distribution have been liking our things and commenting on things so hi guys <laughs> hello to you guys if uh, you're obviously listening to the show and any screeners any free shit yes. we're up for it <laughs> we welcome free stuff <laughs> Because we be poor reviewer folks, so. <laughs> um, but the one, uh, the first one I'm going to obviously mention is Wicked City from 1987. Now this kind of surprised me in the fact that with all my, whatever I've been watching, I've been posting over on the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema uh, Facebook group, and over there the the real sort of like cool cinema heads over there. So if you've watched something really bizarre and random, you can guarantee at least one or two people over there have seen it if you want to have a discussion so it's great in that respect and for some reason Wicked City really resonated with the uh, folks over there as I've never had so many sort of likes to a post as I have when I posted that I was watching uh, Wicked City um, Wicked City is a anime film by uh, Yoshi Akira Kawajiri 
who is probably best known for directing Ninja Scroll. He also did uh, Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust. He did um, the short program from the in, which is in the Animatrix, and he also did Cyber City Oedo Eight Hundred Eight. Um, and as of late, I mean, he's the last thing he did was Highlander: The Search for Vengeance, which wasn't particularly good, and that's from two thousand and seven. So he's definitely a director with some real sort of credentials there, and he tends to specialize in that very sort of old school style of you know demons and violence and splatter, um, which you know, of course, didn't really warm animator the critics of the sort of late 80s and early 90s where they were calling to you know ban this sick filth but Wicked City it's very similar in many ways to the film Nightwatch in the fact that you've got a treaty that's existed between the human world and the realm of demons and the peace treaty is sort of held up by the earth side uh, by by um a special unit and at the same time the demon world have got their own units uh, which uh they call the black world and it's basically like uh one of those stories where you've got two sort of cops and rival forces that are forced to work together in this case we've got uh taki who's a human male and maki who's a female demon and they're assigned to protect a diplomat who is going to secure a treaty between the two worlds to ensure the peace is happening and they basically have to keep him safe while the rogue demon forces are attempting to assassinate him. Really cool movie, uh, very sort of action-packed and very sort of fast-paced, and there's quite a fair bit of demon randomness in there as well, including the spider lady who shows up in about five minutes of the film starting and shoots webs out of a very interesting place, shall we say. Um, other than that, the film is kind of very oversexed, and as I said, the demon element is going to be a bit diversive if you're obviously of just sort of a fan of sort of the more newer anime titles. I think if you're not used to the old school anime sort of style, then uh, certainly the demon element is going to be a little diversive there. But it's certainly a fun ride, and there is also a live action version there called A Wicked City, uh, which is kind of fun. It's a lot of sort of wuxia style flying for the air antics, but it's uh, you know it's an interesting companion piece to this one, but certainly. The original anime is definitely worth checking out. Are you? Uh, is that one for your list, there, Stephen? No, I, I don't think so. I, um, I think I can do without Spider Lady shooting webs out of the hoo ha. Um, I was looking, I was looking up the, um, the um, Hong Kong live action film has yeah. got quite a cast, hasn't it, with Jackie Chung and Leon Lay in it, and Michelle Race and Carmen Lee. And um, allegedly, Joy Hart directed some of the scenes. Yes, he did. <laughs> secretly. So I think I might go and check that. I am a bit of a sucker for these sort of these the, the high concepts of um, sort of the real world and another world, whether it be another dimension or, or, or demons or hell or whatever, or the afterlife where, where things kind of seep over and you need to police between the two. So I might be kind of interested. It's a pretty common theme, especially within the demon anime. Because when you like look at like Legend of the Overfiend, when you've obviously got the the demon world and the human world sort of on the fringes of each other, and that you've got this idea of you having this one being that's going to tip the balance, it seems to be what comes to be like a reoccurring theme within these worlds. And I think when they use demons, it's just basically an excuse to use tentacles and to get away, get around uh, Japanese censorship most of the time. But while on the subject of obviously adaptations, I did finally see the Netflix adaptation of Death Note, which we were also excited to see, and then we didn't actually watch it. We watched the original Death Note, and then we didn't watch well, uh, this remake. I think we, yeah, we we did, and I, th- I thought we did it in preparation for that. And yeah. then I think the reviews came in, and I think we both decided, no. <laughs> well... So- so two years later... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two years later, you're sort of like, oh, I might as well watch it. Um, I mean, it's directed by Adam Wingard, who did The Guest and You're Next. Kind of a diversity director for myself, even though he is a pioneer of the mumble gore genre. Um, itself a splinter of the mumble core um, genre, which was basically hipster New York filmmaker folk trying to do that sort of Richard... Uh, Linklater and Kevin Smith sort of talking style where characters have interesting conversation but not a lot really happens. Uh, But all their characters are all like rich hipsters. 
but no, Death Note, it's... I mean, it's kind of interesting to see when you look at the people who are, like, not fans of it because they're, like, constantly trying to compare it to, like, the Japanese version, in particular the anime, and it's sort of like, well... You kind of kind of watch it on its own sort of merits because here Wingard's very much presents a very Western version of the story. So the focus here is a lot more on action and Final Destination style splatter than you know the the weirdness of the the Eastern version we watch, where you have like the show giving you tips on how to make your love rivals fat um, and all those sort of quirks that we come to expect from Asian cinema. So it's a very different sort of movie, but I'm. I enjoyed it, and William Dafoe as the God of Death is, uh, Raikou is certainly fun, even though he's a lot darker in this version, when we compare him to the one in the version we obviously saw, where it was kind of a more playful character, and just sat around eating apples, and, and being the and, sort of, like, devil presence. And being fairly bad CGI. <laughs> yeah. If I remember rightly, it was... Well, it was uh... so weird when we watched that version, because neither of us realised that it's just the first half of a story. Oh, and it so, came crashing to a halt. <laughs> Some stuff was set up, and then it just ended, didn't it? Yeah, so, I mean, at least this version has a has an ending. So I've got to give it that, and I know that there's talks about them doing another two films, because Wingo was like saying, oh, I think there's enough material there for three films. So it'll be interesting to obviously see... If they do, I know that Netflix, there's been some sort of memorings as of the last few weeks that uh, they are in production of doing a sequel. So it'd be interesting to see see what it is. But I'd be interested, obviously, to see what you make of that one. Obviously, haven't seen the the original version. And we do obviously need to watch the second Death Note movie at some point to try and bring some sort of closure to the story. I, I think I think you're right, because there was some interesting stuff set up right at the end of it. Well, not at the end, sort of during it, with the, with the girl who was also going to get the the book yes. and and nothing ever came of that and i am kind of interested to see what happens because that's the thing i mean obviously in the very the, obviously the first one we saw it was like there was a second book and with this uh this 2007 version it's all fine until we get to like the last half an hour and then they wingard tries to find this really random twist and it doesn't quite work much like the fact that you've got both light and l here, seeing this guy, kind of like nerdy sort of characters, and yet they have engaged in this cross-town race across Seattle to uh, try and try and uh, set up the end game. And it's like these two guys look like they have difficulty just doing normal tasks. No mind running across the city. So, <laughs> live-action remakes of anime uh, and manga are always somewhat troublesome. Yeah, in Japan, it's a thing. And I always feel incredible. I don't know. I think I'm about 50-50. Sometimes they're fantastic. And, and our old friend Takashi Mikey is actually really good at it. Yes. And can even turn something like Ace Attorney, which is a computer game. But, you know, he, he can take other media and turn it into something interesting, throw enough out to the fans of the original media to say, yeah, that, that that's good, and put his own twist on it, or play it straight. Um I'm, ne- I'm never too sure when a Western studio tries to remake a manga or an anime. I mean, we saw it didn't we? Uh, within the uh, within the lifetime of this podcast. You know, we've um, we've had Ghost in the Shell, and I think we both kind of enjoyed the Western remake, but it's utterly unnecessary. We, and, uh, yeah, and I I'm mean, not, I'm not entirely sure who the audience is because I think the people who are going to watch it would have seen the original anime anyway. I mean, I enjoyed the the Western version for what it was. I, I mean, I still strongly disagree with their casting, even though Scarlett Johansson was really good as the major in, in that film. I enjoyed it for what it was. Certainly, whenever we have like the, these adaptations, because we've certainly got a lot of like um, Eastern adaptations of anime properties. I mean, the last couple of years, we've seen like Bleach get an adaptation, and, and um, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure got an adaptation, again, from uh, Takashi Miike. And then with the Western adaptations, we've obviously got the Cowboy Bebop live-action series, which is coming out, which is currently being put on delay uh, due to John Cho um, injuring himself. So it's kind of been set back about eight months at the moment. And I know there's a lot of people out there who are really protective of Cowboy Bebop being remade because, you know, it's this, this, this sort of, like, perfect thing. And you feel that any attempt to sort of, like remake it or adapt it or expand it is only going to sort of uh, 
take away from it in many ways. It's it's yeah, just it's, protected properties. It, it's it's really hard because either you do something which is really faithful to the original, at which point you say, "What was the point?" You know, what have you done here? You just done it with real people <laughs> well done um or you try and expand on it improve on it or do a a version of it and like you say it, it, the, the, the that inbuilt fan base will rub up against that quite roughly whatever happens i mean people remake shakespeare all the time <laughs> um so maybe it's just too soon Maybe maybe you need a, a a generation to go by before it's valid to remake it. I, I do think, and certainly in the Japanese market, um, Japanese filmmaking has been sorely ruined by the fact that so many films are just biggish budget um, churnouts of the latest popular um, manga or anime. Yeah. Um, and it's really hurt, sort of the, the stifle the creativity. Um, so, but you know, I think I I I would have felt the same. I guess um, you know, with 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 comic book movies, uh, Western comic book movies. You know, Marvel do a certain job on them, and let's not go down that debate at the moment. So. <laughs> but at least you can say that they're either fairly faithful, or at least they're internally consistent. And they're part of a bigger picture. DC do a less good job of theirs. And we've seen plenty of other adaptations of um, things like um, Daniel Cloud's Ghost World. Yes. Um, sort of more independent stuff. Um, the Harvey Pekar movie, American Splendor, which kind of mixed comic and biography and also in a, in a remarkable way. I thought that was a superb film. Um, so you, you can do it. Um, but I do think definitely in Japanese cinema and to a lesser degree Korean cinema, they like to... Um, I like to adapt web comics, which seems to be a much bigger thing out there than it is anywhere else in the world. Um, just, I don't know, it just feels like that's a shortcut to having a film or a TV series made. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that, that that piece of work is valid for doing that. But we could find examples in both directions, I'm sure. Yeah, certainly. And it's also interesting when they try to obviously transfer, like, especially um, anger manga and anime style characters across to a live action series and the fact it always comes across it always looks so awkward because these dimensions are so insane and so gravity defying that when you transfer it into like a live action arena it very rarely sort of works I mean there's obviously exceptions like this like uh, Kashen and um, Yataman which had those those fun transfers um, Yataman again being Takashi Miike there Clearly, he's got the formula nailed down for how I, he makes his work. I, I, I think the guy, the guy is known for three things. He's known for his sort of, uh, you know, you talk about the outlaw period, his, his, his Yakuza films, his gangster films, and we've spoken about a couple on here already. And then he's known for horror movies when he's only ever made two. <laughs> <laughs> and, and one of them... And one of them isn't um, audition. <laughs> uh, he's literally made one, one missed call and... Um, over my over your dead body are the only two actual horror films he's made but the vast majority of his work is adaptations of things from other media so like from computer games to anime and live live um, manga uh, live action manga retellings and so i guess i guess my argument there is are we losing that creativity of that director because he can do for higher work, I don't suppose he's chosen any of them off his own back, and he can churn one of them out a year, easy peasy. And you know, are, are we missing out on thirteen other Takashi Mikey films <laughs> because because he's working on um, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. He's well, that's the thing. Mikey's always been a been a hired gun. He's not a not a writer by any imagine since the imagination he just basically just gets given scripts and and gives them the mikey flair oh mikey flair should i say it's bizarre the fact he's known for horror when as you said he's not really done a huge amount for horror but the films he has done have been so talked about and discussed um to, to the point where auditions now probably seen is constantly listed as being the scariest movie ever but i think anyone who goes into a, a audition thinking that they're gonna have like a a mind-blowing time is probably in for a sh- severe shock of how pace that movie is. So, well, there's, there's one jump scare. There's a there's an icky 
few moments, but most of it's about atmosphere and unsettling, and uh, it, it, it's you know I, I, I maybe it's half a horror movie, but yeah, absolutely. You know, we talk about again. This is the same thing we talk about this time every year. We talk about that. We talk about Ring. We talk about um, a handful of other films being part of J horror and, and, and Asian horror, and and really, I, I don't think auditions sits in there very comfortably at all it has no connection with long-haired ghost girls and i mean i guess i suppose it does have things about revenge which is something we're probably going to talk about later so i i don't know i don't know it's um it it, it, to me it's a it's a it's a very dark drama cool um well that's in obviously what we've uh, been watching so i think it's time to fire the projector and look at our feature presentation Okay, so tonight we're talking about Tale of Two Sisters. I said this is a film released in 2003, um, a South Korean South Korean film directed by uh, Kim Ji Woon. As a director, I mean, he is. It's surprising, really, because when we think of like the other sort of directors, you know, like Park Chan Wook, Takashi Miike, those sort of directors who sort of like uh, came across, even like Nakada, who did uh, also did The Ring. And then when we think of Kim Ji Woon, it's never like a director who's sort of works sort of leaps out at you even though he's made some really sort of standout films. I mean, he did The Good, The Bad, and The Weird, I Saw the Devil, A Bit of Sweet Life. Uh, on the more sort of obscure side of things, he also did, like, The Foul King. I mean, he's even done uh, Elang, The Wolf Brigade adaptation for Netflix. So he's definitely a director in demand, yet whenever I try to think of one of his films, he's one of those directors I always sort of, like, struggle to say, oh, yeah, he was the guy who did this. I know his films more by title than by who directed them. Um, well, that, that, that's interesting, because when I first sort of was exploring Korean cinema, I think um, the Korean government sort of were, 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 were pumping this Korean new wave thing. And Kim Ji-won, um, Park and uh, Bong were the three directors they were really pushing. And I think what's interesting with Kim Ji-won is, is that I can't really say there's a there's a... There's a thread through his work. <laughs> his first first film, The Quiet Family, is a is a black comedy, which was remade by Mikey. If we're going to tie this all together, yeah. as the happiness of Katakuris, as a completely different film. Um, Foul Kings about a guy obsessed with a wrestler. Um, uh, Bittersweet Life is one of the greatest gangster films of all time. Good, the bad, the weird, uh, fantastic West Eastern Western. I saw the devil, which I think you've. Um, rechecked out as part of your uh well we certainly got in one of the horror lists it's on um, the, uh, which yeah, is one of the darkest list. one of the darkest serial killer films of all time and made the arnie comeback film in his one trip to hollywood with the last stand um and so I, I, you know he's, he's not a horror director he's not a, a drama guy he's not a comedy guy he's um he seems to pick different genres every time and put his own twist in it. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's the only way I could go about him. So it's interesting that you don't... I mean, obviously, there are a lot of Korean people called Kim, so that doesn't help. <laughs> but um, it's interesting because, to me, he's one of the, he's one of the core three, um, along with Park and, and Bong. But uh, I guess that's just how I get, got into it, rather than... Um, I think you came into it in a different from a different way, so that's interesting. I mean, the way I came into into sort of the the revival really was just really through the Tartan releases. So obviously, Tale of Two Sisters came came through, and uh, we had Bit of Sweet Sweet Life. And I mean, this is for myself. Tale of Two Sisters, I I've had it pretty much since it's come out, but for whatever reason, it's just sat in the cinema shame pile, and it's only now that I sort of like finally sat down and watched it. And as I said, I it. His films I've sort of like watched sort of sporadically as they've they've come through. I mean, as I saw the last stand and enjoyed that, but 
for whatever reason, he's just never been a sort of director that I sort of like put one and one together and sort of said, oh, you know, this is the distinctive style. Where it's like you can look at like a Partridge and we can see the distinctive style. You can see the same sort of style when we look at like, as I said, we look at Amike or you look at um, to a lesser extent like uh, Sion Sono. I mean, with Sion Sono, I think it's so hard to like say. I mean, now he's sort of like more at the sort of free, forefront, but at the same time, he's doing as doing as many weird, wonderful genres as he can possibly do. I mean, one minute he's doing like a Roman porno revival, the next he's doing like a, me, a meditation on what love is, he, and and then we can see him just going into full thriller mode with something like Coface. So it's very hard. To, he's a very sort of hard director to pin down, and I but think... but we can see certain themes and weirdness and and and. We, you know, when we talked about Forest of Love last episode, yes, you know, it was the greatest hits of his work, so it can all tie together. Um, I don't think that's true with Kim. No, I mean he's not like uh, someone like like Zhang Zemo who did like Hero and House of Flying Daggers, where it have that sort of trademark thing where obviously with like uh, Yumu, it's obviously the use of colours, and when we look at Kim's work it especially with uh, there's just no sort of like line as far as i can see that sort of ties it all together normally directors have like one or two reoccurring themes or they have a particular style that they carry through but with his films they're all so completely different to each other the the only common line is his um he commonly works with sort of two of the greats um song kang ho um and uh lee byung hun but apart from that I'm struggling, and uh, to be fair, I haven't seen um, his most recent two films either, so I don't know if his stock is still high, so I haven't seen Age of Shadows or um, The Wolf Brigade, so I, I, I don't know how well uh, how well his um, his more recent work has been, but up to, up to Last Stand, I was a big fan. Well, the film itself, it uh, focuses on a recent released patient from a mental institute who returns home with her sister only to face disturbing events between the domineering stepmother as well as the ghost haunting their house all of which allude to a dark past of the family history this being a film where you enter it thinking that you got everything worked out and then it pulls the rug out with you with a very impressive twist and uh as we would you were posted on on your twitter feed today Stephen. it's sort of like you had no idea how you're going to talk about this and i think i'm just going to go with my response by just saying you know there's going to be spoilers ahead so yeah the, 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 there's there's no way we can talk about this film in any depth without spoiling it so yeah um spoiler alert spoiler alert go and spend two hours watch the film and come back <laughs> <laughs> first of all we got these two sisters we got uh, Sumri who's played by Im Soo Jung and she's been basically spent been away in a mental institution she's been released now to the family's sort of secluded estate it's sort of out in the woods there's nothing else around it it's just this house which is you know it's it's hard I mean how would you describe because it? it's not really like a stately home but at the same time it's not just a shack in the middle of the woods it's no it's it, it's kind of a a, a, a... It's obviously a rich family, but maybe it's been some tough times. So it's not quite decaying, but it's dark, darkly lit inside. Um, the wallpaper seems to be important. I've got the still book of this, and the wallpaper's all over the still book. Um, there's, and, and it's in the credits, isn't it? In the opening title cards. Yes. It's, 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 all, it's all about that. So I, th- I think the idea is they're rich. This is out in the country somewhere. It's not. It's not a stately pile. This isn't Stoker. This is. Um, this is. Um, it's, but it's not. Easy. So clearly they've got enough money to have a nice big house and decaying. Definitely so. Now, uh, Sumi has got a rather close relationship with her younger sister uh, Su Yeon, here played by Moon Gun Young, and she's very protective of her. The two are. Are so joined together the fact that they're constantly walking around holding hands they've got a very unique bond between them and it's sort of only further reinforced by the fact that they've their stepmother uh Eun Ju played by Yum Jung Ga uh is 
she's portrayed as like domineering. She's the you know the typical wicked stepmother style figure, and the two of them they constantly like um, try to dig up memories of their their mother, which has sort of been pretty much hidden away by her father. It's at the point now where her father's sort of remarried, and all the sort of like memories of his his former wife um, and their mother has sort of been like hidden and locked away from them and he's basically trying to start this new life with his new wife uh much to sort of the, dis- the uh chagrin of um, the two the two daughters um really from this point strange strange things start to happen in the house basically the arrival of the the return home of Sumi sort of ushers in this whole series of uh uncertain events we get uh the so sort of like ghostly visions and um the sort of torment of the stepmother starts to sort of escalate as the tension in the house grows really so let's just obviously just focus on this sort of first off of the the story i mean how did you find this family unit it's interesting because you know something's off yeah but you can't quite put your finger on what it is the girls clearly have a close bond, almost overly so. There's a lot of hand-holding, a lot of protectiveness. Um, the father, something's wrong with the father. His, his communication skills are off. The, uh, the, 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 the stepmother is, when they first meet her, she's like over the top um, and, and, and isn't in line with the rest. So the whole, the whole family thing is obviously there's always something wrong. And it's not just in the acting, but it's in how the conversations are phrased. Um, and to start with, you think, oh, this is just because it's an artsy-fartsy film and people are talking to each other in a stylized way. Um, but it certainly puts that, puts you on edge a little bit, thinking, what, what's going on here? Even, even, and, and even when it sort of descends into, you know, the, the abuse of um, uh, Su Young by the stepmother you still think something something's not quite right here um so that that's what i got out of it sort of an unsettling uncomfortableness with what i'm being shown here yeah definitely with the father he seems to have almost like checked out he seems to constantly turn a blind eye to what's happening around around it even though the tension's very clear visibly there and we see it again when you've got the aunt and uncle come for the most uncomfortable dinner ever, should we say? And uh, they yeah, clearly um, know something's up. <laughs> yeah, again, it, it remi- I mean, we won't go to spoilers just yet, but it reminded me of several other films that have a similarish twist, where once you know what's happened, yeah, uh, it, it, everything suddenly makes a lot more sense. Uh, but you know, the the the, the that 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 dinner that the story that the stepmom tells that doesn't make any sense <laughs> the um and then and then the 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 the, the woman has a fit <laughs> the, what is she, is she the aunt is she is that what she, she is yeah she's the uncle's wife and she has a, a has a seizure yeah um and, and and a very unpleasant one because she's still got vomit in her face when they're driving home they haven't wiped her off and she's oh, I saw a ghost under the sink and you think oh okay but nothing but then nothing really is done with that and it's a kind of weird it is i thought the stepmother had poisoned her or someone had poisoned somebody the way that she's juddering around on the floor and again mm. we got we've got the ghost girl there who's very sort of uh traditional sort of asian horror uh style ghost in this uh one it's not the long-haired variety but it is you know it's a very sort of in Except the background we do- presence we do earlier have a long-haired ghost, so there are two ghosts here, um, which becomes clear who they are. Because there's that weird scene, not too far into it, where um, uh, what's her name, um, Su Sumi is woken in bed by the ghost coming onto her bed. Yes, that's a bit more traditional, but that's a different ghost to the one that's under the sink. <laughs> um, again, which and, and and is actually a clue to something else later um but that 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 was that was actually the misstep for me that 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 almost sadako like ghost scene earlier on i thought was in keeping with the rest of the film yeah because i mean the ghost that we see that we see there with the broken neck is supposed to be the the biological mother 
which that's right. It's so it's introduced so early on, and before anything's been established, you think, "Oh my god, it's just a weird ghost lady." And I have to say, the movements that she has, especially when she moves onto the beds, is rather unnerving. Um, it I is, and, and I don't, I can't it's... place why because it's not like an horrific thing, but there's just something unnerving about the way that this ghost moves. Sort of slides in, yeah. doesn't she? And it's 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 very odd. But that is that's I think that's the first. Is that the first shock of the film? That's yes, the first that's sort the first of real film. supernatural event. And it and it it doesn't. It almost feels like it's pandering to a more traditional J horror K horror audience. And I, that's always that scene's always stood out for me as not matching the rest of the film. But it's still effective in and of itself, which is weird. The film itself, in many ways, is kind of like House. It lures you in. It's got this nice sort of classical score and everything's very sort of bright sunshine and uh, everything, everything's sort of very homely and it slowly pulls back, although it doesn't go to sort of the same weird extremes that House does suddenly, where, you know, it's, oh my gosh. one minute it's sparkly <laughs> like cats and the next thing it's someone getting eaten by a piano. The film doesn't, frankly, do that, but it still lures you in with that sense of, Oh, homeliness, and oh, isn't this nice? And nothing bad can happen in the daytime. And, you know, you, the darkness slowly is creeping in to the point where we get, you know, the big twist. And it's sort of like, and even then, it's just sort of like one line of dialogue that just shatters the whole illusion we've been building up for like, well, we the have, first part of the film. Yeah, it's almost two twists, aren't there? Because there's one just over an hour in, which I think is the one that you're talking about. Yes. The, the the line of dialogue. Um, shall I spoil it? Yeah, I think, I think <laughs> yeah. we can. Where, uh... where, where the father father basically tells Sumi, "What are you talking about? Unju is uh, not Unju. That's the um, Su Young is dead." And you go, "Oh my god, she's dead!" But then <laughs> Sumi doesn't really react to that, and the film continues on until it twists again, and we meet the stepmother again. And it turns out that Sumi has been imagining most of the film that we've watched up to now, and that, yes, her sister is dead, and the stepmother that we've been seeing is Sumi's been basically, what was it, like disassociative personality disorder? Yeah, and basically, has been basically she switches herself. <laughs> yeah, so, so every time we've seen the stepmother, up until about an hour and 20 into the film has been Sumi all along, which then on a rewatch makes you think, is this all, is this all consistent? Does this work? And um, I'm not entirely sure it does, but it's really, it's, it's the way that, that initial twist that, yeah, you know, like in Sixth Sense style. Well, uh, it, 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 it doesn't, it, it then does the twist and they think, well, was it a twist? Is that true? Is the dad lying? It's just, I see no evidence she's a ghost yet until for another sort of 15 minutes later when it all really becomes clear. Yeah, and the father doesn't exactly do a great deal of establishing what's what's happening. He just goes, oh yeah, your sister's dead. Um, you're, you're acting out. And it's sort of like, well, that was no help at all. <laughs> and it's really from then that we start, everything starts to unravel. The illusion from that point is sort of broken and we see... The, the world slowly being revealed um, to its, its true true life, and we obviously start to understand that when we see him on the phone um, to the mental hospital, like either in the film and stuff, what he's actually talking about because he's um, on the phone to him and he's saying, you know, she's still unwell and it's not working, and we realize that you know he can see that she's creating this world for herself still, and. Yeah. In our mind, it's just the fact that she's struggling to adapt to, you know, life life back in the real world, so to speak, and that's what he's he's concerned about. Not the fact that she's created two alternate personalities to sort of interact with, and it's one of those it's one of those twists that uh, either works or it doesn't work. Because I've trying to remember, I think it's in in adaptation where they're trying to sell the screenplay called The Free, where the one person's both the cop, the killer, and the victim. Oh. And it's a similar situation here. It's where you've got that, that sort of rule of three where you've got one person and they're playing three very inter interconnected characters. It's It either works or it doesn't. There's no sort of like in-between sort of uh, line. And this is normally why 
when you have these that you normally have it sort of like the two personalities such as we see in like Paranoia Agent where you've got the bookish young librarian woman and she's receiving abusive calls from on her answer machine and it turns out it's her alternate personality who's like this uh, street walker style high class or um, escort um, so that those sort of split personalities are easy to do but when you have three and especially three very closely interconnected characters like you have here it's sort of like it makes you question how it all the mechanics of the situation especially how do you have one personality attack the other yeah and, and they do scenes. it does that's what kim does try and address this but very briefly i thought it's just a tiny little flashbacks to some of the events that we have seen to show you what was really going on during those events but it's not really something that's it doesn't unravel then spend 20 minutes showing you what you haven't been seeing it's literally a collection of shots isn't it really you know the the you see her killing the birds you see her hurting herself you see her dragging something around when you thought it was another character it's um I think it demands quite a lot of the view. If you zoned out for 20 seconds, you'd, um, you, you wouldn't have grasped it at all. Not at all. It's It, it does re- so require your focus there, but at the same time, it's not such a a clever twist that you need to sort of like go away and, and lie in a dark room to sort of figure it all out. It's, it's, it's not, a... no, it's not, it's not that, it's not, it's not that kind of twist. It's no. just, it's... It, it... <laughs> And, and 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 also but having that that sort of that pre-release of it, you know, your sister's dead, um, and then not ten minutes later, and you're mental. <laughs> it's, uh, um, it's an interesting way of doing it. I wonder. I wonder as much as I love this film, if it had been better served for both, both that that whole thing to be unravelled at the same moment, because I didn't, you know. I didn't know who to trust for 10 minutes <laughs> when he said that. And I, it, again, sent me down a completely wrong part. The very first time I saw it is, is the dad gaslighting her or something. <laughs> the dad doesn't help the situation in any way, shape or form. It's, it's, sort of like, it's almost like because of him coming back to the family home, it's probably the worst thing that, that could have happened, really. And... Oh, it doesn't speak well of Korea's mental health services at all. There's no way this girl should have come home. She was, um, she was clearly wasn't ready. And sending her home to the, um, as we eventually find out, the uh, the scene of the crimes, as it were, uh, doesn't doesn't seem like a good idea to me. And, but I'm not a trained medical professional, so what do I know? So. We, I mean, we talked uh, earlier about the the ghost ghost girls that are in this film, and the film actually does try to do something with it. But I felt it was very, uh, it felt sort of forced in there, and that we were probably best off just treated with our our standard, um, you know, reveal, the big reveal that you know it's just it's not three people, it's just one person, and then yeah, it's it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because it doesn't just do that; it doesn't just do hey, you've had a really unreliable character sort of guiding you here, but turns out she's crazy and some of these things haven't happened. But the ghosts were real. (laughs) um, I do wonder if that was a a step too far. I I know what you mean. Um, Because then it it does all that time suggesting there's ghosts and something horrible going on. And then it says, no, 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 this is all in her head. And then it said, yeah, but the ghosts are real and they're really vengeful, and <laughs> and and actually, some that they will do horrible things to people. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, there was, a, there was a lot. There was a lot to unpack in the final third of this film. Well, this is the thing: we get all these random moments, but sort of packed in. We get that we get we get the ghosts brought back, and then we get the flashback to how she came to be institutionalized, uh, which again is got some really random moments in there but yeah it it in many ways it felt like there was a lot of attempts to tie up loose ends it's almost as if the studio basically got sort of cold feet when they saw what the end product was and it's like no we we got to tie this up more so the when we obviously get how she came to be like end up in the asylum 
it felt very much kind of like you know this attempts to bookend everything and just like tie it up together and they didn't really need to be tied up it was sort of like you've got the introductions so you've established that she's been unwell and you know everything else is it sort of plays in off that i don't need to know how she got there in the in the first place but i don't know it's yeah. not necessary I, I, I think I think it is as designed. Um, Kit Kim wrote it himself, interestingly. Um, so he really is a bit of an auteur in that regard, because um, that's kind of that's that's not terribly usual in Korean work. It is often studio studio led. Um, um, I I know what you're saying though. I, I I think there's so much to unpack in that last 25 minutes or so. And it didn't. Nec- I think it's quite fairly effective, but I, I think it would have been just as effective without it. The other thing, of course, it's doing is there's the whole element here that you or I won't have understood is that uh, the, the title of the film it, it's based on a Korean fairy tale, um, uh, the tale of I can't remember what it's called, mate. What's it called? Um, <laughs> Good luck pronouncing it. Yeah, no, I'll do for the English variation. <laughs> it's it's the, ta- the the tale of um, Rose Flower and Red Lotus, and um, uh, the, the, their Rose and Lotus are the trans the meanings of the names of the girls. But that it's it's a very dark Grimm's fairy tale kind of Korean fairy tale about sisters and step evil stepmothers and things like that. But I think that will have played on the expectations of the Korean audience about what was going on. And yeah. in this, the, the stepmother really is evil and really is abusing the girls. And she ends up killing both the girls and the ghosts then get revenge on her. So I think the ghosts are an important part of it. But actually, the way the story played out is quite different. So it's sort of, it's it's like, um, I don't know, having a film about Cinderella. But then Prince Charming turns out to be um, the beast from Beauty and the Beast or something like that. It just, it, it plays with things a bit. Um but yeah, so I think I think there's I think there's a level of quite often we talk about this. I guess is that we're not culturally aware enough of some of these films about where they're coming from in terms of story or in terms of culture or in terms of even what's in the news at the moment to always quite grasp what's going on. So I think a bit of it is that, and I think it's the story of Jang Wei and Hong Ryeon. So I think I can do it. <laughs> cool. Um... So, yeah, I mean, this is really sort of a very unique sort of tale in the in the greater sort of scheme of things. And I think it's very much the same with Kim's whole filmography. It's very different than... Every time he does something, it is, is a bit different than what we've come to expect from from the various genres he's representing. I mean, as I said, with this one, it's not just a ghost story. It's obviously got those deeper psychological elements to it. Uh, you've got the family dysfunction, and when we look at his other films, as you said, Bittersweet Life is not like any other gangster movie. His East and Western, The Good, The Bad, The Weird, is completely unlike any other East and Western we've seen up until this point. As He's constantly bringing his own sort of style and his flair and certainly in terms of the cinematography there's a lot of flair shown with how the camera moves how it goes down hallways and just the actual set design and how the production looks there's some real sort of there's some real sort of style and flair in there it's really almost comparable to like a Park Chan Wook and just and and uh, films such as like The Handmaiden where you see that sort of flair and attention to detail that he puts in it even if he's not sort of like putting as much details into his scene there's certainly a lot more flair than many of his sort of contemporaries really It's it's not as showy as Park Chan-wook I don't think there was a couple of scenes um, mostly when he's trying to hide somebody's identity the, 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 the reveal of the stepmother the real stepmother is really bizarrely done. Did you not think? <laughs> so, so like, look, like, like a headless body comes in in a suit, and you think it's a guy, and then it turns out it's the stepmom, and he's he's trying to do things with like blocking the camera off and putting the camera at strange angles. And but there's some there's some beautiful cinematography here, and there's some beautiful, like you say, some beautiful stuff going on with the camera. But it, I don't think it's as flashy or smart as maybe Park Chan-wook does 
it's a, it's a it's a little more restrained. One of the things that thematically I found interesting is there are no innocent people in this movie except maybe for the younger the youngest daughter. The the father not only is he odd, but let's face it, he was having an affair with his wife's nurse while she was dying of cancer. <laughs> um, so he's he's hardly he's hard and he doesn't he seem to suffer for his crimes. Um, obviously, we find out that our lead character, her earlier brattiness, has led to the death of her sister. The stepmother actually is pretty freaking evil, even though you start wondering, oh, maybe that was all in her head. But then it turns out that she was quite bad and then was instrumental in allowing the 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 other daughter to die um so i i found it quite interesting there aren't many sympathetic characters in this film at all other than um other than the youngest girl who has doesn't really do anything wrong partly because she's the victim both in life and in death yeah um so that that was interesting to me um but then again in death she has become a vengeful and does kill somebody so <laughs> have, have I just said this is this is a film with with very few sympathetic characters. Any character you may have a sympathy for don't until you've watched the entire film. The other thing is, of course, this film is now how old is this film? Two thousand and three. So yes. over fifteen years old. Um we do need to say a word about the two lead actresses because at the time they were well, um Im Soo Young at the time, I think she like won Best Newcomer Awards and things like that. I mean, this is this is, I think she'd been on TV before, maybe or something like that. But she really did. and she has grown up in the last fifteen years to be one of the top actresses of Korean cinema. Um, a very flexible. So you will know her from I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay. If we're going to keep talking about Park Chan Wook today, yeah. um, but she's been in a whole bunch of other films like. Um, you know, uh, blockbuster films like um, Wuchi the Taoist Wizard, which is a film you can you can get in this country. Um, a gorgeous indie film called Come Rain, Come Shine, which I'd recommend. So, you know, she's grown up from this. I'm not so sure how old she was when this was made. I think she was uh, 13, uh, 15, 15, 16. She's gone up to become not just a star, but quite a... Uh, a flexible and actress that you that, that it's usually she's a sign of quality on the other hand Moongun Young was a superstar before this film was made um, uh, she, her career actually started five six years before this when she was like ten um, and she's known as um, well, she certainly was known as the nation's little sister. Oh, I think we've talked about this before, that the Koreans love to give nicknames to their celebrities. <laughs> and um, she has grown up in front of the, um, in front of the Korean people her entire life. To my mind, her career acting wise hasn't gone as, isn't as, uh, uh, what's the word? Isn't as uh, laden with uh, plaudits and awards as um, as Im Soo Jung's did, uh, but it is very interesting. These, these, these were these were two really young actresses, which I think really pulled it off. Although, how many of these films, Elwood, have we watched where young Korean actresses are freaking fantastic? <laughs> 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 they, they seem just to churn them out you know remember that remember the girl in the man from nowhere and um others that they, they seem to steal the show um it, it's phenomenal does make you worry a little bit about how they're all being pressured to uh succeed with some things that we know about the korean entertainment industry but yes i just think a word about those two and their performances and the fact that this film was really a starting point for, for somebody else and the fact that it's now 16 years old makes me feel freaking ancient I can't help but wonder when it obviously comes to Korean actresses, the fact that obviously three of the Disney star, <laughs> the Disney acting school of when we look at like American actors, especially young um, actors, they all have this like super enthusiastic, cheesy, hammy sort of style. And then we look at the British actors and they're all sort of like 
they come from this little background where they're doing theatre and they talk about Chaucer and doing highbrow plays and stuff and they're going to transfer that highbrowness into every single role that they do going forward and obviously in Korea and Japan and stuff they I mean I know for music that's obviously with uh, Korea they have like the K-pop factory but I'm not sure what it is for actors whether they have a similar sort of boot camp sort of uh, system set up I, I I don't think it's anything quite as insidious as um, as the K-pop factory, um, where people really are um, worked to literal death and are put under phenomenal restrictions in their lives. Um, I guess you know there, there isn't. A, there haven't been dark tales of um, Asian cinema for a little while, but in the last week or two, um, another famous Korean actress singer model has um committed suicide due to the stresses not just of her career but of the pressures put on her by the the, the korean people yeah um so that was uh suli from uh formerly from the fx group or function of x i don't know how you say the band's name but yeah she was a big deal person who was actually trying to maybe step away from the norms of that and was was fighting against some of those restrictions that were put on her but in the end the pressure of both the record company the pre- and the pressure of the expectation of what people expect from their uh, pop stars obviously uh, affected her so much that she she took her own life in terms of the actresses you, we, you know, again I've talked about it before you know the, the pressure's not maybe not so much in terms of the factory work that they have to do that 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 kind of churning out of successful people and how hard they have to work to do it but that pressure that they're under once they are successful I can only imagine I've been a bit dismissive of Moon's later career um, but the pressure of being the nation's little sister um, you know to be in every newspaper every web article um, to everything you do she got an awful lot of she, she grew up looking quite different of course she's had plastic surgery that's criticised her for that you know it's uh, just yeah we just don't have here not not to the same degree. No, not at all, not at all. But yeah, I think it's Tales is just is definitely one that's certainly worth checking out if you haven't done already. Um, I think it is very different than anything else of that sort of period in just its how it's constructed. Because as I said, it starts off as one thing, you think, oh, it's going to be like another ghost story, and then obviously we had the big twist. And it suddenly becomes a lot more sort of complex there. And you then, as you said, you go back. It's much like Shadow Island. You go back and you replace certain scenes from the new perspective of of, so, of reality, really. And it's like, oh, that's why that person's reacting that way. This is why such and such a thing happened. So, Yeah, it's, I think, for its time, you know, wrapping it up in that J-horror, K-horror bundle, which it was done... You know, by putting out Titan Extreme, we've, we've basically said that. I think that's doing the film a bit of a disservice. It's it's got way more going on than a lot of those films, like like Ring, like Audition, like um, and then the sort of the, the other ones that, that that were coming out as on like Cello and all the others <laughs> that were that were fairly straightforward revenge films, maybe wrapped up with Ghost Girls and things like that. This is a uh, this, this is playing to a slightly different audience. It's a much more complex film. It demands you pay attention, though. Um, you ain't going to be able to half-watch this, this this film. But I haven't watched it for a while. And I had forgotten quite how, how much ghosty stuff was in the first half of the film. Um, yeah. Uh, so memory had faded that out. And for me, the bit I remembered was the psychological bit. Um Maybe it's just because I'm getting old, mate, and I'm, not <laughs> I'm unable to remember things as I used to do. But it was just interesting that my memory had, um, my memory, not just uh, the characters' memories, was was somewhat flawed on this film. But I really enjoyed it, and I'm glad I'm glad you finally knocked it off your list. Cool. Um, well, that brings us into another edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you happen to be listening to us. <coughs> and uh, maybe leave us a review as well. Let us know what you think of the show. Um, 
If you want to uh, get in contact with us, we are available on the social media platforms. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Twitter is at uh, AC Film Club. Um, we're also on Instagram. You can also check out our blog, which is asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com. Uh, and on there, you can find our full archive of episodes, as well as other interesting bits of writing and the mixtape as well. So lots of good stuff there. Um, Stephen, I believe it's your pick now. What you actually inspired me the other day, again on on the list of um, of, of 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 horror, Asian horror, yeah. um, you picked um, uh, Tetsuya Nakashima's Confessions, yes. which is a huge favourite of mine. Um, so much so, I went to watch um, I think his follow up film, and I went to see him introduce it in London. I took a day off work and met the guy um, with his big bushy beard, and I was really excited because I love Confessions. I think the first twenty minutes of conf- well, the first ten minutes of Confessions and what it turns into is just amazing. Um, the book's really good as well, so I was really excited about the follow up film, which is called The World of Kanako. Um, it also stars um, uh, a very famous. Um, God, what's his name? Famous, a famous actor, um, Koji uh, Yakusho, who Yakusho, who you will know once you see him. But I hated that movie. I hated the word of Kanako when I was at the cinema. I thought it was horribly violent and cruel and pissed on everything that I knew about that director because I'd loved a load of his previous films before, um, like Kamikaze Girls. So what I would like to do is go back in time, five years, and pretend I haven't seen World of Kanako, and that you would watch it with me as well. <laughs> well after that, that sales pitch, how could I possibly refuse? I think I think you'll love it. It's a gruesomely violent film, and, <laughs> and um, it, 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 I, I think my hatred of it is ill-judged, and all I'm hoping is that I'm going to come back and say, you know what, that's a really good film. Okay. So, uh, make sure you join us next time for our reevaluation of the world of Kanako. And uh, as I said, if uh, you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe buttons and, you know, spread the word. If you know somebody who likes Asian cinema, send them a link to our show. We really appreciate that. You uh, got someone you dislike at work, send them a link to our show and spam the hell out of their email. <laughs> Maybe they'll like the show. Who knows? But uh, we will be back next time uh, talking about world, world of Kanako. Uh, so hopefully you can join us then but uh, until then good night hey 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 Kinono